1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in your prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for the gospel. I'm thankful for the story of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, his virgin birth, his perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Lord, we're in a series right now talking about let's go. Let's go share the gospel. Let's go tell other people the good news of Jesus. And so, Lord, would your word today encourage us to be people of the gospel, to be people who take the good news of Jesus to wherever we go, wherever, uh, whoever we meet, whoever we speak to, that we could be like these people in this scripture this morning where Paul says he doesn't have any need to come and say anything because we're doing the job and reaching our region with the gospel of Jesus. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the verses I read to you are the introductory lines of Paul, the Apostle Paul's first letter to a church that he planted in the city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is in modern-day Greece, uh, and, and it's, uh, today the city is still there. It's called Thessaloniki in today's modern Greek, but it's a city that was there. It's one of the oldest Christian cities in the world. And Paul went to Thessalonica. You can read the story of Paul planting the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And so after he planted the church, after people have come to faith in Jesus, he's discipled them for a period of time. And then Paul goes on to another city to begin reaching other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and later on, he writes a letter to these believers that he he founded this church. This would be like, and I've used this example before, we have a founding pastor here at Believers Fellowship, Brother Eddie, and he sometimes comes back and, and encourages us in a sermon, or maybe he sends you a message, or maybe you stay in touch with him because he was your pastor for such a long time. He was the one who came in and first uh, taught you the gospel and taught you about Jesus. And so this is like, Brother Eddie writing to you and reminding you of some things about your faith. 
Amen. And so that's what Paul is doing is he's writing to those believers that he first reached with the gospel and he's sharing with them and he's encouraging them on what it means to not only to receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but to share that gospel and to see miraculous things happen when we give witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that gospel is just an English word that means good news. Good news. And the, the Greek word in the New Testament is that's used is evangel. So there's the word evangel. That got translated into English as gospel. And that's an old English word that simply means good news. So evangelism is good newsism. It's when we're sharing the good news of Jesus uh, and we have a desire to see people come to receive the good news of Jesus that, that God has forgiven us. He's provided a way to heal us, to deliver us, to set us free from sin and to provide eternal life for us. That's what evangelism is. And listen, we have to be a gospel-centered evangelistic church because the gospel, the good news, is the foundation of the church. If we're not gospel-centered, gospel-grounded, if we're not good news-centered and good news-grounded, there's no point in having church because the gospel is the foundation of the church. Everything we do, we do because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. Every note that gets played on this keyboard, every beat that gets played on that drum, every word that is spoken into this microphone, every dollar that is spent by this church, it has to be for the gospel and for the the sake of the gospel and because of the gospel. Because the church, listen, by itself is not the hope of the world. The church is not the hope of the world. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of his birth, life, death, and resurrection, that's the message of the church. And that message is the hope of the world. The church's job is to spend and to be spent in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in all the earth. That is our job. The church is not the hope of the world. The message the church has is the hope of the world. And that is the message of the gospel. John Wesley said this once. He said, you have one business on earth to save souls. That is your one business as a believer, as a Christian, is to save souls. Before you are a teacher, you're a soul winner. Before you're a nurse, you're a soul winner. Before you're a farmer, you're a soul winner. Before you're a lawyer, you're a soul winner. Before you're a businessman, you're a soul winner. Before you're a student, you're a soul winner. Before you're a friend, you're a soul winner. Before you're a husband, you're a soul winner. Your one business on earth is to save souls. Before you're a farmer, you're a soul winner. Before you're a teacher, you're a soul winner. Before you're a doctor, you're a soul winner. Before you're a nurse, you're a soul winner. Come on. I'll just keep preaching it till somebody agrees with me. Your one business on earth is to save souls. If you don't believe it, you, you were misunderstood and misinformed when you became a Christian. Someone lied to you if they said you could just sit on your rear for the rest of your Christian life. It's going to be rough in here. Y'all are quiet this morning. Come on now. The gospel has to be our singular focus and desire to serve Jesus by bringing more people to Jesus. 
I shared during the offering just a second ago, when you're in the presence of a king, you bring a gift. That first gift is our life. But listen, the next gift you should bring is someone else's life. Come on. The greatest gift you can give the Lord is lives. Souls brought into the kingdom of God. Why? Because every soul matters to God. Every soul matters to God, whether born or unborn, in the womb or out of the womb, black or white, rich or poor, legal or illegal, innocent or guilty, on the political right or the political left, Republican or Democrat, straight or gay, cisgender or transgender, educated or ignorant, young or old, every soul matters to God. God loves every one of them. And God has chosen you, his church, to be the one institution on earth that can bring the gospel to them and bring them closer to Jesus. The Bible says that the believers in Thessalonica that Paul is writing to in the verses we read today, these people who first heard the gospel from Paul, they are an excellent example, the Bible says, of how to receive the gospel and share the gospel. I want you to notice a few things about the men and women that Paul is writing to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First, they received the gospel and they shared the gospel within the context of an anti-Christian culture. They shared the gospel within the context of an anti-Christian culture. They lived in a culture where polytheism was the religion of the day. The Greek and Roman polytheistic religions that had all different kinds of gods and goddesses that you worshipped and you gave offerings to and you paid homage to. And there was that was the state religion of the day, that that was what you were expected to do and participate in, is this polytheistic, idolatrous religion. This idea is that you have to give to the gods in order to appease them to keep natural disasters or personal misfortune from happening. That's whether any time that anything bad happened in life, they blamed it on the fact that we didn't worship the gods properly and we didn't offer the gods enough offering or we didn't uh, appease the gods in the right way. And so that was the religious context of most of the people that you read about in the New Testament. That's how they believed that, uh, that religion worked. And even the Roman emperor was worshipped as a god. They believed that Julius Caesar, that Caesar Augustus at that time, that he was God on earth, that he was a, a deified human being. And so this is where Christianity gets in trouble in the first century, because we say that Jesus, Emmanuel, is God on earth. But the Roman emperor says, no, I'm God on earth. That's part of the problem that the early, uh, the, the first century uh, governments and religious systems had with Christianity. And it actually made Christianity illegal because the Christian testimony is, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the Roman Empire, you never called anyone Lord except for Caesar except for the emperor. And so to claim Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not. And that is a big problem in the first century Roman culture and government. And so that's part of what got Jesus killed was that Jesus at, at most was claiming to be Lord and at very least was refusing to deny being Lord when he was asked. Remember Pilate asked him who's Lord and he wouldn't deny it. 
That's part of what got Jesus killed. That's part of what made Christianity illegal is that they claim not allegiance to an emperor and not allegiance to a nation, but they claimed allegiance to a king and they claimed allegiance to his kingdom. And that was a problem. And so they were living in an anti-Christian, anti-Jesus culture. They're living, receiving and sharing the gospel in a time when most people believe in other gods. And Christianity is illegal. There's gross immorality in the first century Roman Empire. The greed, unspeakable sexual sin, oppression and manipulation of the poor, war and violence are glorified by the Roman Empire. All these things are this gross immorality that these Christians are living in. And in the midst of all of that, Paul came to the city of Thessalonica and he preached the gospel there for three weeks. In Acts chapter 17, it tells the story of Paul coming to that city. And it says this, it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, he preached in the synagogue. So there were some Jewish people that were living in the city in Thessalonica. And that was the platform that Paul often would use to begin sharing Jesus with people. He would go to people who already believed the Old Testament. And he would start talking about how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And he was the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. But the thing is, is that in the synagogue, it wasn't just Jews that would come on Saturday. There were Greeks that were curious about other gods because they wanted to make sure that they appeased all the gods. They believed there was more than one. And so if these Jews have a God, we're going to come and make sure that we're appeasing this one too. You see how that works? And so there are people who aren't even Jewish. They're in the room too. And Paul is there for three Saturdays, three Sabbaths, sharing the gospel of Jesus, reasoning with them, he says, from the scripture and explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Some of them, it says, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and as did many great, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this is how Paul comes. He comes in in a culture that's totally anti-Christian, that's totally anti-Jesus. He finds an avenue to relate with some people. They're already there. They're already gathered. They already have some knowledge about God. And he sits down with them and he says, let me tell you about how Jesus is the true revelation of who God is and how Jesus is the Messiah. And remember last week when I told you that it takes seven to a person's hearing the gospel seven to ten times before they actually respond to the gospel in faith and they make Jesus their Lord. So Paul is there three weeks, and he's going to keep explaining and reading and testifying and sharing about Jesus for three weeks, and there were people who began to receive the message, to receive the truth about Jesus and believe the word that Paul preached. So he's there for three weeks, and it says in Acts 17, verse 5, it says, some were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they're meeting in Jason's house, being discipled in the word of the Lord. And people who were jealous and didn't like that people were leaving their polytheistic religions and coming to follow Jesus, then they come and attack them and cause physical harm on them. And then Paul actually had to leave the city by the cover of night. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 10. It says, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away 
by night. They had to sneak out of town because this message had caused such a riot in the city because they're proclaiming the gospel in an anti-Christian culture, in the midst of an anti-Christian government, under the threat of violence, even death, in a city overcome with rioting. Isn't it funny how the New Testament, when you read the Bible, it's so relatable to today? Violence, rioting, anti-Christian culture. In the midst of all of that, Paul shared the gospel. People believed the gospel. And then those new believers turned around and shared the gospel of Jesus with other people. Now look, they had every excuse in the book to be quiet and just go along to get along. But they didn't. Paul compliments them and he says, you became imitators of us. First Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, much persecution. They burned your houses down. They drug you out in the street and beat you. They made you, they told you to be quiet. They threatened your life. They put you in jail. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we feel like a little bit of persecution comes our way. There's, I don't see joy on Fox News's face. They get a few preachers on there that say that we're being persecuted on this stuff, and they don't look joyful. They look angry. That's not how we're supposed to respond. And listen, we're not even experiencing true persecution in America. Let me, let me get you in touch with some missionaries that work in some closed countries, and I'll tell you, they'll tell you what true persecution looks like. We still have freedom in this country, praise the Lord. We don't have the excuse of hiding under persecution, and even if we did, they didn't. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not need not say anything. In other words, Paul is saying, you heard the word under such great persecution, but that didn't stop you because now you're sharing that word throughout all of your local region. And I don't even have to come back here, Paul says, because you're doing the job for me. I don't have to come back as the apostle and plant more churches because you're doing it. You're reaching people for the Lord. You're reaching people with the gospel. Against all odds, your church is growing. These believers in the New Testament are examples to us because while their troubles and difficult, or excuse me, while the troubles and difficulties of our day might seem similar to theirs, we have it easy compared to these people. We can't blame our lack of evangelistic zeal on the threat of violence or death. They could have, but they didn't. We can't blame our lack of sharing the gospel on, on Christianity being illegal. They could have, but they still didn't. These people we're reading, we're reading about today took the gospel seriously. Their lives were transformed by the gospel, and they did whatever they could to make sure as many people as possible heard the message. That's our job. That's your job description as a believer. Another thing I want you to notice about these believers as they receive the gospel, Paul tells them that signs, wonders, and miracles come when the gospel is received and the gospel is shared. The gospel brings signs, wonders, and miracles. I'm going to make a controversial statement. Are you ready? You can text me or attack me after the service if you don't like it. But I'm going to make a controversial statement. Sometimes we make Christianity too much about heaven and hell. 
I want you to sit on that one for a second. Sometimes we make Christianity too much about heaven or hell. Now listen, I believe in heaven or hell. It's in the Bible. We believe it. I believe that all human beings are imperfect, that we're all guilty of sin, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that if we live a life apart from Christ, we will reap the consequences of our sin. We believe that hell is the ultimate destination of anyone who dies in sin apart from Christ. I believe that. I believe in heaven. Heaven's worth getting to. Come on. Heaven's worth getting there. I believe in that great reunion when we will meet Jesus and live with him for all of eternity and we will be reunited with the saints that have gone before us. I believe that we need to be found in Christ so that on that day when we stand before God guilty of our sins, we can claim the blood of Jesus' cross and the victory of his resurrection that we have been covered by the blood of our guilty stains. I trust in his resurrection to provide me with eternal life. I believe in all of that. We believe that. And if you're not 100% sure that on the day you stand before God that you can claim his blood and that you can claim his resurrection, today's the day to get it right. So let me just clear that the air. We believe all of that, and you need to believe it too, and you need to get it right. But sometimes we make Christianity too much about heaven or hell and not enough about today. See, when, people, when we tell people, you need to get with Jesus, you need to get right with Jesus, you need to find Jesus so that you can go to heaven one day, we just told it, didn't we? We're communicating that following Jesus doesn't matter until that one day. That it's all about that one day and not about today. We're communicating that life with Jesus doesn't really change right now, it just changes your one day. But the Bible says that living for Jesus can change your life right now. Can I give you a tip? When you're sharing the good news of Jesus with people, don't just make it all about one day. Make it about today. Let people know that serving Jesus doesn't just mean a great payday when you get to heaven. It means securing uh, it's not just about serving, securing your tomorrow. It's about transforming your today. We don't just preach Je serve Jesus so that you can go to heaven. We preach serve Jesus and your new life will begin right now. Right now. Here's my point. Christianity is not just about the future. Christianity is about transformation in the present. If you go through and you read the book of Acts, I encourage you to do this and check me on it. If you read, Acts has 28 chapters. If you go through and read the book of Acts, there are several of the great sermons preached by the apostles sharing the gospel for the first time. These were the earliest sermons that were ever preached to convince people to begin serving Jesus. You go through Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and preaches to the crowd. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter again is preaching in the portico of the temple to all the observant Jews that are there worshiping God. In Acts chapter 7, the, the deacon Stephen preaches to the religious leaders, and then they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 8, Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch riding in the chariot. You guys remember that story? If you go through and look through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, heaven is rarely mentioned in those sermons where they're trying to convince people to follow Jesus. And hell is never mentioned. Hell is never mentioned in the book of Acts. Heaven is rarely mentioned. 
Because the focus of those first sermons to convince people to begin serving Jesus wasn't about one day, it was about two days. And it's more effective if you begin sharing how Jesus can change your life right now. There was a long, I was part of this tradition that you just scared everybody into serving Jesus. You preach hell hot, you could smell the smoke when the preacher was done preaching. And listen, sometimes some of y'all need a good hell message to get you right, and I understand that. There's a place for that, and I get it. But I have found in my life and in my ministry, it's more effective to not scare people to Jesus, but to love people to Jesus and tell people, hey, he loves you so much. He wants to deal with your life right now. He can heal your body. He can deliver you from sickness. He can deliver you from addiction. He can deliver you from fear and anxiety and depression. And you start telling people, what can Jesus do for me right now? All of a sudden, they want to listen. Are y'all okay with me? I still believe in heaven or hell, all right? Don't, don't send me emails or texts or leave the church over it, okay? I'm not a heretic. In the earliest records we have of people sharing the gospel, heaven and hell wasn't the focus. Instead, their message was Jesus Christ, who was dead, has been resurrected, and he will transform your life. And when they preached that message, they often saw great signs, wonders, and miracles as people came to faith in Christ. So if you want to share the gospel in an effective, biblical way, focus on Jesus and his power to transform to heal, to deliver, and to change people's lives. Let me ask you this. Show of hands, how many people you've experienced God healing your body physically once in your life? Guess what? You got a story to tell. When you're sharing Jesus with someone, you can say, hey, let me tell you about this time that Jesus healed my body. How many, not a healing miracle, but a different kind of miracle. You saw God do a miracle in your life. Guess what? You have a story to tell. You didn't think you could be an evangelist, did you? Yes, you can. You've got stories to tell of how Jesus has made a difference in your right now, in your today, and how he can make a difference in your life. How many of you, you've seen that God has uh, done something to maybe restore a relationship in your life, a miraculous restoration of a, a broken relationship? Guess what? You have a story to tell. And that when you start telling people about Jesus and what he has done for you in your life, you build people's faith that he can do that in my life. And you're going to begin to see signs, wonders, and miracles because you share that Jesus is a God of signs, wonders, and miracles. Come on. that's a, You have a testimony. You have a story to tell. You don't have to have all the right answers or all the Bible verses memorized. You just have to tell your your story and say, you know what? I believe if Jesus loved me enough to do it, I know he loves you enough to do it and he will do it in your life. Paul put it this way. First Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not only in words, so don't just use your words, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In other words, the Holy Ghost showed up when we started talking. When we started sharing Jesus, miracles started happening. Healing started happening. People got delivered. Demons fleed. Hell was shaken. That word power in the original Greek is dunamis. It's where we get an English word like dynamite or dynamic. In other words, the gospel is powerful. It is dynamic. It is active. Being a Christian isn't just about saying a prayer one time and sitting down until you make it to heaven. It is about uh, a power. The gospel is power. It has power. 
power. It's the truth. When you start to live for God, you start to find yourself empowered to do things you couldn't do before, empowered to overcome sin, empowered to overcome addiction, empowered to see signs and healings and miracles, empowered to fulfill your destiny and your purpose and your calling in your life. And if you've got Holy Ghost power, that means the devil can't push you around anymore and you're not a victim. You're a victor and you don't have to freak out anymore every time life throws you a curveball because you've got the gospel. You've got the power of God unto salvation to live this life the way God intended for you to live it. Paul said when you receive the gospel, you received it with a demonstration of power in the Holy Spirit. There's power in the gospel. You found out that this isn't just run-of-the-mill religion anymore. You don't have to drag through this miserable life until you get to heaven. We sang a, uh, I'll Fly Away a few, a few a couple weeks ago last week, and I changed the word on the screen. I don't know if you saw it because the song goes, just a few more weary days, and then I'm not living any weary days. Listen, just a few more happy days, just a few more power-filled days. We're going to see power in this life. We're going to see dead bodies raised and blinded eyes open and crippled legs walking and, and love and uh, loaves and fish multiplying. That's the kind of power that the gospel has. And these signs and wonders and miracles, they're not just external, they're internal. When you start to follow Jesus, he'll start to do miracles in your inner life, in your personal life, in your emotional life. Suddenly that self-esteem issue you had doesn't seem to uh, be uh, hindering you anymore. That eating disorder doesn't seem to be there anymore. That addiction will start to bow. That cloud of depression will start to dissipate. The gospel we believe in and preach isn't just a bunch of lists of beliefs and do's and don'ts about heaven or hell. It is a living truth. It is a living faith. It is about a living man who is fully God, who has the power to do the miraculous in your life. Come on. That's the gospel that you have to share. That's the message that you get to tell people about. The gospel is transformed formational. And if we start telling people about all the wonderful things that God has done in our life and will do in their lives, we can start saying he'll do it to you. He'll do it in your life. And they won't want to wait until their deathbed to make it right. They'll say, hey, if I can have some of that right now, I want some of that right now. Come on. Paul says to his spiritual sons and daughters at Thessalonica, he says, you receive the gospel in the midst of a culture that is totally anti-Christian. You shared the gospel in the midst of a culture that is totally anti-Jesus. And you've done such a good job of it that your whole region has now heard about Jesus. Everyone's talking about everything you've done to bring people to the Lord. That's what he says. That's my paraphrase, but go back and read it. First Thessalonians. Everyone's giving reports of how you've been transformed by the gospel and your community is being transformed by the gospel. Their testimony Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who God raised from the dead. There's a transformation that took place. And not only has your personal life been transformed, but Paul says your entire community has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And he says this, all of this happened, verse 7, because you became an example you became an example to all believers. Your life is a Christian example. He actually says earlier, you became imitators of us. You imitated Paul, your pastor, 
And then you became an example to others, and people are imitating you. You became an example to all believers. That word example stuck out to me this week. Being an example for Christ. Being an example of the gospel. A walking example of the gospel. You know, this letter was originally written in the Greek language. And when Paul wrote in the Greek, the word that we translate to example is the Greek word tupas. Tupas. And this Greek word tupas communicates the idea of one object touching another object and leaving a permanent mark. Okay, can you, guys, can you help me with this table right here? The Greek word tupas communicates the idea of one object touching another object and leaving a permanent mark. They would use this word tupas for dye. When dye touches a cloth, it use, leaves a permanent stain. It leaves a permanent mark. They would use this word uh, in a fight. When you hit someone or you, you wound someone, it leaves a scar, a tupas, a permanent mark, something one object touched another object and left a permanent mark. But even better, our English word type, like a typewriter, is the exact same word. If you translate that U in the Greek to English, it turns into a Y, and it's literally the word type. And I thought about that as I was looking at it. This is where we get the word like type and typewriter. You take a typing class. How many of you use, anyone old enough to have used one of these? I won't, okay, yeah. Like this one, this is an old one. This is like, yeah. This is an original Underwood right here. But a typewriter, why'd they choose type? Because when you hit one of these keys, there's a striker that moves, and it's an object that when it touches the paper, you hit that key and that, striker flies up there and it hits the paper and it leaves a mark. Paul says, you're like a typewriter. He says, you're an example. You're a tupas. You're a typewriter. You've got a mark on you. You've been marked by the gospel. And then God's going to push your button one day and you're going to come into contact with someone else and the mark that you received, you're going to leave on someone else. We have been marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been marked by the crimson blood that was spilled for us on a cross. Not only to give us an eternity in heaven one day, but to transform our lives today. And listen. That mark that you've received is contagious. And so every time you bump into someone, it ought to be like you push a button and that striker that's been marked by the gospel now leaves a mark on someone else. That's what he's saying when he says, you are an example. You've been marked, now go mark other people. That is your job as a Christian. Listen, have you been marked by the gospel? You raised your hands and you said, I've, I've experienced a healing. Listen, that's another mark of the gospel in your life. I've seen God restore broken relationships in my life. That's another mark 
of the gospel in your life. I've seen God heal my marriage when it was broken and it looked like we were going to a divorce lawyer and he healed our marriage. And listen, that, that's a mark of the gospel on your life. My son or my daughter was away from the Lord and they've come back and their life has been restored. And I know that they're back in the family. That's a mark of the gospel that's been left on your life. I used to be addicted and hooked on all kinds of junk, but God set me free and delivered me. I should be in a prison cell. I should be dead, but God gave me another chance. Listen, that's a mark that you've left in every time you receive one of those. It's your job to come into contact with someone else and leave the mark that God gave you on their life. That's the gospel. That's what we do. It's not about knowing all the answers. You don't have to be a theologian to be an evangelist. You just have to have a story. You just have to have a story and leaving your mark. Listen, my prayer for our church, for Believers Fellowship. Will we be people who are marked by the gospel and we leave our mark on this community? We leave our mark on our neighbors. Just like Paul said, you have transformed your entire region. We don't have to go plant any more churches there. We don't have to send any more missionaries there. We don't have to send any more evangelists because you have become the evangelist and your whole region has heard about Jesus because you've been marked and now you're marking territory for Jesus. Listen, that's our prayer. We cannot, we cannot sit on a pew until Jesus comes back. Blood will be on our hands if we have come into contact with people and not marked them for the gospel. Ezekiel actually says something along those lines. I didn't put this in the notes. But the prophet Ezekiel, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, there will be a day of the Lord coming, a day of reckoning. And he says, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we preach the word. Now, you could read that and say, knowing, therefore, the terror that people who aren't going to know the Lord are going to have when they stand before him. But listen, I, I read it a different way. I don't want to make it to heaven, but then know that there are lives I could have brought with me that I refused. I refused to share. That'll be a terrible day. I don't want to make it to heaven thinking that I didn't do everything I could to bring as many people as possible. If you're a believer and you live in this community, the other people in this community are your responsibility. You don't get to say, that's not my responsibility. It's not my job. That's what we pay the pastor for. No, that's not. You don't get to say that. When Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 4, God comes to him and says, where's your brother Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that correct answer to that question is, yes, you are. You're responsible for that life. You're responsible to make sure that you have been marked by the gospel and you're doing everything to leave your mark on them. You're not responsible for how they respond. You're not responsible for what they do after they've been presented the gospel. You're not responsible for making them believe or have faith. That's not, but you are responsible for leaving a mark. It's your job. We're marked by the gospel, and we leave our mark. Our job is to make Jesus known in the world, to imprint and impress on the world the goodness of and the love of Jesus. Listen, don't let your paper be blank. 
Make sure that you're marking, making your mark for the gospel. And when you do that, you'll begin to see signs and wonders and miracles. We'll see a demonstration of the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, when we start taking the gospel seriously.